Hi everyone, welcome to the Sacred Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It's episode 23 today and we are on the 17th of February 22 and looking at free speech today about why free speech is important and particularly thinking about whether it's possible to build a case for free speech from a Christian perspective because I think that's that's really important. As we were thinking about freedom a couple of weeks ago, um, I think Christianity is the bedrock of our freedoms. So is that the case with free speech? And um, I believe it is. So we're going to be looking at that um, in the main section of the podcast. Uh, just one uh, one thing I wanted to share with you before we got going. Um, you know, I, I just like to share any sort of interesting articles and things. And there's just one thing which uh, struck me today, but it's something which I keep coming back to. Um, not this particular article, but a theme, a topic which I keep coming back to. I think it's so significant at the moment. So um, on the Daily Skeptic uh, about a couple of days ago, uh, there was an article by uh, Dr. Sinead Murphy, um, who's a, a um, philosopher, I think an associate professor at Newcastle University. And uh, it was called, What are we to make of the research finding that women think men wearing face masks are more attractive? Um, and um, basically in the piece, she was reflecting on how, you know, that this what this research said about us and how we see each other and about how we now kind of see each other as uh, rather than as individuals, as an expression of our preferences. You know, I prefer this, I prefer that, I, I sort of box ticking. You think about, for example, on a dating site, uh, you know, you might put in, well, I prefer women with you know, blonde hair or brunette or this tall or, you know, and this kind of body shape or whatever. And it's all about our preferences and about how we can find someone to suit our own preferences rather than loving someone as an individual. And, you know, it really, I, I think the, the piece was very thought provoking and I recommend you to read it if you haven't already. Um, and I usually like actually the things that um, Sinead Murphy puts out. But it really made me reflect on how, as a society, this is is just as what I, what I've been saying. You know, a few weeks ago we were looking at relationships in um, the um, the More Than Survival series, and just thinking how we, as a society, are so separate and isolated now that even in the the most intimate of our relationships, the, the relationships which should be most intimate, actually we see each other in this. Um, abstract kind of a way looking at you know individual characteristics that we like you know do you like this kind of music do you like that do you like you know um, this kind of what kind of hair color do you you know what what color hair do you have all that kind of thing so we look at attributes rather than actually at you know the things that matter someone someone as a whole someone's person and I think, you know, this is, it's so significant that even in our most intimate relationships, we're not really intimate. We don't really know each other. You know, something interesting, you may know this, that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, to make love, the verb that's used is a euphemism. It's actually to know. And you can see this, for example, in, uh, I think, in Genesis chapter four, and Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth and, and so on. And that's that's how it goes that, you know, to make love in the Bible is, you know, to know someone deeply, to, to love them. And you think how far away that is from the way that we treat love and sex and intimacy now, that now we are just atomized individuals 
we don't even know each other in our most intimate relationships. And you think about what that's doing to us as a society. It is destroying us. It is dehumanizing us. You know, I think we've got to get back to this, you know, actually loving one another, to knowing one another, to not just seeing one another as a, a unit of, um, you know, someone who could potentially breathe out virus particles that might infect me or something, you know, just only seeing someone in that one way, but actually loving someone as a whole person, to know them deeply and, you know, just to, to, to kind of have that, that depth of, of relationships. I think for the vast majority of people today, and I would say especially of a younger generation, having that depth of relationship is a very rare thing. And it's something which, um, you know, has been going for a long time. But what's happened with COVID has just, you know, been the, the brought it out in, more into the open. You know, it's it's the fulfilment of something which has been happening for a long time, separating from people and just cutting ourselves off. And, you know, if we as Christians and as the church, if we want to make a difference in the world, then I think we, we need to be absolutely committed to building healthy, deep friendships with people, um, because that is what the world is starved of at the moment. And, you know, it, the world can't even do intimacy, you know, kind of that love, sex and, and intimacy correctly, as it were. And that, you know, we need to we need to show what what healthy relationships are and we need to to work on what it means to be family as a church. You know, as Jesus said, anyone who does the will of God is my brother, sister, mother, that we need to work on those relationships and cultivating that love between us. Uh, because I think that's that's the thing that the world needs. And if the world sees that it's happening in the church, then it will say, actually, I want that, you know, because people will be able to feel what's lacking in them if they can see it in us. If they can't see it in the church, which I fear they can't really at the moment, then that's something which, um, you know, it it's not going to win anyone for God, not, not going to win anyone for the Lord. So that's my little reflection. Do have a look at Sinead Murphy's uh, article and I hope that you find it thought provoking as I did. So with that said, what we're going to look at today is free speech. So let's let's go straight on to that. Okay, so let's look at a Christian case for free speech. Now, the reason why I wanted to put the Christian case for free speech is because uh, a number of people have been looking at free speech over the past couple of years. Uh, for example, Andrew Doyle, I know, uh, has been writing about this. He wrote a book, I think, called Free Speech and Why It Matters. And there was an interview on the Brendan O'Neill podcast last week, and I can't actually remember the name of the person who he was interviewing, but who's written about it as well. Um, and I'll put the link up if you'd like to, to have a, a read or, or listen to those uh, under the um, in the description under the podcast. Um, but I just wanted to look at this from a distinctly Christian perspective um, because there are you know good books from a secular perspective looking at free speech but I think you know Christianity and the Bible has something you know really fundamental to say uh, about free speech and it underpins if you like everything else you know if Christianity kind of underpins the western world and underpins our freedoms then it should have something to say about free speech 
Um, but firstly, let's just think about the problem, and this is some stuff which I'm sure that you'll know already, but let's briefly think about this. So there's, you know, cancel culture, of course, is, is a growing problem. You think about the high-profile, well-known cases such as uh, J.K. Rowling, uh, who, because of, you know, although she's got almost all the right opinions because she believes that uh, women are women and men are men and you know defends the right of women to have women only spaces um, she has been well cancelled is maybe too strong a word because I think she's too big to cancel but certainly um, it's been attempted and she's got a lot of abuse for that um, but over the last couple of years or, or before that there were um, real problems sharing differences in alternative viewpoints about things like Brexit, um, things like lockdown, as well as um, you know political things. I mean, I think there have always been issues with politics. You know, but um, people shouldn't talk about politics and religion. Um, so I think you know politics has always been somewhat divisive. But over the last couple of years, I think people have. I mean, well, I say a couple of years. It's been going on for longer than that. But people have really seen you not just as someone with a wrong opinion, but almost as sort of some kind of immoral monster if you hold certain opinions. And I know that when I've tried to talk online about Brexit or about lockdown and so on, then I've got quite a lot of pushback um, from my right-thinking friends. Um, and you know, this is the this is the way it goes now. That you know, it's not just that I have wrong opinions; it's that um, you know, no, you are you are incorrect. You know, it's like kind of like I'm a Holocaust denier or something like that. Um, so, you know, it, that that's that's where we are at the moment. And I put my experience of cancel culture. I mentioned this in a video some months ago, but someone reported me and one of my videos for being anti-science and what have you. And I got a call from the, the powers that be in the Church of England um, threatening to, you know, basically take away my permission to, you know, to officiate in the Church of England. Um, so, you know, it, it is, um, yeah, that, that's, it's, it's real and it, it goes on that free speech is certain. We do not live in a society, in a culture which values free speech. Um, now I've put here that I think Christians in some ways have been the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to free speech. Um, this will be significant. We'll come back to this at the end. Um, but um, Don Carson wrote a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And the book was published about 10 years ago, nine or 10 years ago. Um, and it's interesting actually thinking back uh, to see how much it's changed since then. Because, you know, he was writing then particularly about, you know, more Christian and sort of the battle between traditional Christian beliefs about things like marriage and progressive um, ideas about marriage. And how the two were coming into conflict. And if you weren't tolerant, in inverted commas, then you were cast out. Um, and that's why the book is called The Intolerance of Tolerance. I put a, a picture of a Tim Farron up there. And um, Tim Farron, you may uh, you may remember um, a few years ago, he was, um, uh, when he became leader of the Lib Dems, he was constantly hounded by the press because it was known that he was an evangelical Christian, you know, what a terrible thing. And um, and he was hounded about his views about marriage. You know, did he believe that gay sex was sinful? That was something that he was uh, he was asked constantly. 
and he evaded it and evaded it and evaded it until eventually he said no um which um uh yeah uh, which i think he came to to regret actually caving in but um but anyway what happened to him was really i think the precursor to what has been happening with um with brexit lockdowns and so on you know that you're not allowed to participate in public life if you have the wrong opinions if you're on the wrong side of history as they um people keep using that phrase the wrong side of history um and th- yeah there's a tweet here which i put the last thing for this um, by marcus brigstock the comedian marcus brigstock this was from 2013 so uh, almost exactly nine years ago which says is there a reason why those opposing equal marriage feel justified in objecting to being described as bigots? So he says, you know, you people who oppose equal marriage, so-called equal marriage, um, why do you object to being described as bigots? And it's, you know, obviously he doesn't understand anything um, about why anyone would would support traditional marriage rather than what he calls uh, equal marriage and uh, you know this was the thing that at the time when the same-sex marriage bill was going through then I was you know um, writing about it thinking about it quite a lot and I was trying to it was the ideas that were important to me you know it wasn't about how we treat anyone it was about the idea of marriage and wanting for me to defend and uphold the traditional ideal of marriage because I think there are good reasons why as a society we should be doing that as well as you know what the bible uh, says Um, and you know I I think as a Christian I should have the freedom to be able to to practice and defend what I believe to be rational and true um, in in society Um, and for me I certainly did not feel like you know I felt like I had the freedom to speak things, but it certainly was, I felt like the walls were closing in um, a bit at that time. So, you know, this has been going on for a long time, um, that, you know, freedom of speech, uh, although we uphold that as a value, certainly, I think in a certain section of society, the walls of what's acceptable to say have been closing in for a long time. So, let's now think about why speech itself is important and we're going to turn to the bible now so why is speech important this is how the bible begins this is from genesis chapter 1 verse 3 and god said let there be light and there was light famous words but do they say anything significant and i think it is something deeply significant here that god creates the world by literally speaking it into existence that's how god creates the world he speaks and it says something fundamental about god that god is a a communicating speaking god that god you know um he he communicates to us he communicates through speaking and you know if you look at john chapter 1 verse 1 another famous passage It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So Jesus is called the word. You know, Jesus is God's speech, if you like. Jesus is, you know, God saying something to us and to the the world. 
Uh, so Jesus is described as the word. And of course, Jesus came and he preached, he spoke, you know, he taught us. And, and so, you know, the son of God, you know, incarnate God spoke to us and used words. And you can read them in the Bible. So something really fundamental about that says something really fundamental about God and his relationship to speech and to language. So God's relationship to language is fundamental. And actually, it's it's beyond that. So let me read you another passage from uh, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it, without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So as the rain and snow come down from heaven and they, they water the earth to um, produce um, flowers and, and you know so on, so God's word achieves that purpose for which he sends it. So God's word is powerful. God's word, his speech, is the way that God accomplishes things. And that's a deeply kind of um, fundamental thing in the Bible. That, you know, the, the Bible is a written word, of course, and through it we, we learn about God and through it we, we are changed and this is what what it says that god achieves things accomplishes things accomplishes things through his word and god is speaks words of truth so this is um the next thing the importance of truth it says um a few quotes here a couple of quotes here john chapter 16 verse 13 but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth and then in Titus 1 verse 2, it says, God who, do, uh, who does not lie. So God is a God of truth, that God doesn't lie, but he, he doesn't lie. He wants us to be truthful in our lives. Um, you think about even one of the Ten Commandments, you know, do not bear false witness against uh, your neighbour. And um, that's the thing, isn't it, that, you know, we are to be people who are committed to the truth and that means truth in every sphere of life that you know all truth is god's truth there's a quote here from abraham kuyper he was a um, dutch reformed theologian and um, the prime minister of the netherlands i believe um, those were different days back then <laughs> to have a theologian as prime minister um, but this is what he said there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I love that quote. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Christ claims everything for his own. And that includes truth. You know, truth is, uh, belongs to him. And that, you know, we as Christians, we need to be committed to truth in every area of our lives. Remember a few a few months ago, I did a video about Solzhenitsyn's essay, Live Not By Lies. And I think this is where the two things meet. You know, that as Christians, we need to be people who are committed to, to living the truth in every way. 
And that's why the truth about masks is so important. Because, you know, if if masks are really not very useful at all, then you know, being compelled to wear them is actually being compelled to accept a lie. Um, we may come back to that in a minute. So that's why truth is uh, is important. And actually, you know, you could see the whole Christian life as a battle of truth, a battle of ideas. So let me read you another uh, couple of quotes here from uh, from the New Testament. This is Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So we've got this kind of um, what, what you might call an antithesis. You know, there's, there's two, two mutually exclusive choices. There's either um, Christ's way, God's way, or there's the world's way. And they're two kind of philosophies. They're two systems of thought. So you're either going Christ's way or you're going the world's way. And what Paul says here is that we need to choose to go Christ's way and see that no one deceives us, takes us captive through through the world's way, through this kind of hollow and deceptive philosophy, he calls it. Similarly, he also says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How can we be transformed by the renewing of our minds? We need to hear new ideas. We need to hear God's ideas. We need to be transformed as we read the Bible, as we hear his word, which speaks to our hearts. That is how we're we're transformed, that as we as we understand more of God's will, as we understand more of his his word, you know what what um, his his path is for us as human beings. And so that is what it means that, you know, it's the battle of ideas. That's what a Christian life is really between God's ideas and the world's ideas. And we as Christians need to understand and accept God's ideas over against the world's ideas. OK, so all of that is well and good. Um, now, can we see free speech in action in the Bible? And I thought this would be good to look at places in the Bible where the two systems of thought come into conflict with each other you know how are we supposed to bring people from the world's ideas to christ's ideas for example how how, you know how can we bring people from one side to the other so let's look at a few examples in the bible of where this happens and and how that happens so this is paul again in uh, 2 corinthians chapter 4 verse 2 we have renounced secret and shameful ways we do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul says that they do not use secret and shameful ways. They don't use deception uh, but they, and they don't distort the word of God, but they set forth the truth plainly. And what he he I think he means here is that they they don't... Um, water down the gospel they don't make it easy 
they don't distort it they don't say oh you know you can come to god and then just continue living exactly as you were before which some were saying um they don't say you know come to god and he'll give you you know a million pounds in a ferrari or or something like that but he says you know we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience we we speak it plainly you know we just give you the truth unvarnished and uh, give you the truth about god give you the word of god in a you know the naked truth if you like uh hopefully in a way that you can understand but you know it is the truth so that's what he says they don't try to um to coerce anyone or trick anyone into into coming to the truth similarly uh, 2 corinthians 5 verse 11 since then we know what it is to fear the lord we try to persuade others what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. So, again, this idea of persuading rather than coercing or tricking or making, trying to make it seem attractive by falsehoods, you know, that they, they just say, we just try to persuade you. You know, we try to reason with you, try to help you to see the truth. And we are, we're just honest. You know, we are, uh, what we are is plain to God and to your conscience, I hope, as well. And that is that's how we should be doing things, you know, trying to persuade people rather than trying to make the um, you know, Christianity, you know, seem attractive by falsehood or, you know, by trickery or anything like that. Um, and then in Acts chapter 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, think about this. Paul was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. He, he knew that this was a bad thing for them. You know, this, was a, this is a matter of life and death. This is a serious business to see a city full of idols, as, as Paul, Paul did. But what does he do? He doesn't browbeat them. He doesn't, you know, scream at them. He, go, he reasons with them. He tries to convince them. He tries to persuade them. So this is how God, this is how, you know, his representatives deal with people who have, you know, wrong worldly ideas, reason, try to convince, try to persuade, try to set forth the truth plainly. Don't treat them as kind of animals and, and say, no, you've got to do this or, or try to try to use a falsehood to entice them or anything like that. Distort, use trickery, anything like that setting forth the truth plainly that's how paul does it and that's how we are uh, supposed to do it now there's one other thing that you might be thinking which is doesn't the bible talk about heretics and doesn't the bible talk about people who have wrong ideas and and it's true that that is the case but how should we treat those people well this is what um, paul says again there's a lot of paul he, he did write um, the the most number of letters in the new testament so this is what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 25 and 26. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So Paul says that opponents, those who oppose the truth, must be gently instructed now it is true that people who are he has stronger words for people who are in positions of authority and power who are teaching falsehood in the church 
And I think those people should be opposed more directly. And, you know, that that's why we have bishops uh, who, in theory, are supposed to depose false teachers. Um, that hasn't happened in the Church of England in, you know, decades. Um, but that's, in theory, why bishops are there, to, to kind of make sure that clergy are teaching the truth. But in terms of, in a general sense, you know, opponents must be gently instructed. Um, I think that's that's the pattern here that we should, you know, um, rather than try to try to ex excommunicate people, actually we should try and win them round. And um, I like that, you know, it's, it's again it's treating people with dignity, you know, saying yes, I, I believe that you're wrong, but here let me try and persuade you. Let, let's look at the Bible. Let's talk about it, and you know hope and pray that God will grant repentance. Now, why should we treat people like that? Let's look at what Jesus had to say. This is uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37, and we are coming near to the end here. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus is talking about speech here. But he is saying that we have a deeper problem than our speech and that, if you like, behind our speech, behind our words, stands our hearts. And you know it flows from the heart to the mouth. So if we think wrong things and evil thoughts, then our mouth, that's what will come out of our mouths. And so the problem is with speech that you can't solve the speech problem without looking at the heart problem. And so it's, it's just like sin, you know, that ultimately the law couldn't solve that problem because it couldn't change our hearts. And this is the thing with speech as well, that if we want good words to come out, if we want truth, if we want light, you know, if we want love to come out of our mouths, then we, we need to have that in our hearts first. And we can't do that unless God changes our hearts. And so I think this is the whole point, really, that people with wrong ideas, people who don't think um, correctly, they need a heart change. You know, that, yes, people can be wrong and mistaken very innocently about that. And you can talk and you can argue. But actually, you know, that there is a spiritual dimension behind that and that we're not going to solve the problem with, um, you know, pro um, with truth and so on without changing the heart and i think you've been able to see that actually with the the politicization of everything that why is it that people have been so committed to a particular narrative and i think it's because behind the the whatever the truth may be about masks or whatever there, there stands a kind of political and spiritual dimension to this that people are committed to a narrative even though it may you know it doesn't have the evidence to back it up um, it doesn't have the truth behind it because it's politically convenient. And I think there is a spiritual dimension going on there, uh, why people would stand up for that rather than for the truth.
And speaking of freedom, you know, in the podcast, um, I think two or three weeks ago, we were looking at freedom. Oh, it's podcast 21. We were thinking about freedom and how important it is. And there's a quote here. This is um, from uh, 1984 by George Orwell, um, a very important book. I read it a year or two back. I'm just at this, you know, I think in the first lockdown and really, yeah, such an important book. But this is what he said. Freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two make four. If that is granted, all else follows. So if we are to have freedom as human beings, and all of the arguments that we were looking at a couple of weeks ago about freedom apply also to free speech, then then it follows that we should have free speech. And it follows that we should have the freedom to say two plus two equals four. And if I, for example, that means if I see that, you know, masks, I've looked at the scientific studies, I don't think that masks are beneficial and I think they have a lot of downsides, then I should have the freedom to say, I don't believe that it's right for me to do this because this is, um, you know, it's going against my conscience, in fact, because I'm being made to say two plus two equals five. And that's wrong. You know, that's coercion. That is oppression. That's tyranny. And science itself needs free speech. This is something significant. Um, there's a cartoon there, which I think was on the um, Daily Skeptic uh, Twitter feed the other day, with um, a picture of someone looking through a telescope and Galileo sa- um, sa- saying, someone saying to him, Galileo, bro, are you seriously going to question the science? Uh, but this is the thing, you know, every scientific discovery of any note has questioned established science. And actually, I mean, think about Galileo, you know, has not been well received by the scientific establishment. And you can think, I mean, there's so many examples of this, you know, how science has someone has come along and looked at the data, looked at some evidence and said, hold on a minute, guys, we're not doing this right. You know, we need to do do things differently here. Everyone has come across, um, you know, against the, the scientific establishment. Science which cannot be questioned is not science, it's dogma. And, you know, it's it's got a religious character. And that's why truth is important. That's why even scientific truth is important. Because if it can't be questioned, then it's not science, it's dogma. It, it goes into the realm of religion. And um, this is why we need to, as Christians, we need to stand up against it. There's a quote that I, I read from... Um, slow boring a chap who blogs at the uh, slow boring website written on february the 15th which i thought was quite good about this it said uh, i think the only sensible thing to say about all this is that discerning the truth is hard and it requires debate and dissent functional expert communities and well-run journalism institutions are open to new information to changing their minds and to correcting the record but that process doesn't work if the fact check squad slaps a misinformation label on you for saying the CDC is wrong about masks. You can't, uh, you can't get to the truth if you just say everything you disagree with is misinformation. That we have to have free speech actually in order to get to the truth, and I think that's so significant. You know that it requires truth. You know people can be wrong. People require challenging. Um, we need to to seek to to get to the truth rather than just be political about it and say anything that is politically inconvenient is misinformation. Okay, let's summarise then as we come to the end of this section. So, Christians of all people should be committed to free speech, not least because when ideas are banned, it's the Christian ones which go first.
Now, this is the thing, you know, when when Christians do not stand up for free speech, we are not standing up for Christian truth. Because as we've seen at the beginning, when free speech starts to be eroded in a society, it's usually the Christian ideas which go first. And, you know, I think that's why as uh, as Christians, we should stand up for free speech. Secondly, human beings have dignity as God's image bearers and should therefore be persuaded of new ideas rather than coerced. I, I like that what people talk about the marketplace of ideas, because I believe that, you know, God's ideas, the Bible, Christianity, I think they will stand up in the marketplace of ideas because they're based on truth. They're based on reality. They are the best ideas. But I don't want people to, you know, to be forced into that. I want people to be persuaded of that. You know that old expression, a man convinced against his will is a man of the same opinion still. And I think, you know, we need people to see the the reason why Christianity is important. We need to people to see it. Uh, then then they, you know, they'll be able to understand. They'll be able to accept it. They'll be stronger. So I don't want people just to accept things just because, you know, I want people to be persuaded of it. I want people to be, you know, kind of have to battle the ideas in their mind and come out stronger because of it. And there are many times in my life, I'm sure you can think of examples too, when you've really had to wrestle with a particular issue and you've come out stronger in what you originally thought, but because it's been tested, then you've you've got better arguments. And that's how it works, I think, and that's, how, what, that's what I think we should be aiming for. Uh, thirdly, truth is real, not political, i.e. is not determined by political consensus. Now, this is something, again, you know, we've constantly been told about the consensus on things like COVID and climate change. Is that consensus there because the scientists all think the same thing? Or is it there because it's politically convenient? And if you look into it, then it's because it's politically convenient. You know, the science says contradictory things in places. Um, you know, the scientists disagree and so on. And scientists disagree all the time. That's, that's as we saw, that's part of the purpose of science. Um, but that doesn't mean that truth is not real. It just means that, you know, sometimes getting there takes a while and there can be different angles on it, which is which is fine. That's how, you know, that's, that's perfectly healthy. Uh, but we as Christians need to be committed to the truth. This is the fourth thing. Christians should be committed to truth everywhere, not simply spiritual truth. All truth is God's truth. And I think that's that's the, the, the point of this, really, that, you know, because God exists, truth exists. And because truth exists, we should be committed to it. So I just realised I sounded a bit like Francis Schaeffer then. I was talking about Schaeffer, I think, last week. But um, if you haven't read his book, The God Who Is There, then I think that is... Um, certainly worth reading thinking about truth you know because i think he does establish the fact that if god doesn't exist truth doesn't exist and as a society since we're stopping believing that god exists we've stopped believing that truth exists as well um, so the god who is there is definitely worth reading i'll try and put a link to that down below as well but this is the thing you know because god is there then all truth is his truth and we should be committed to the truth in every aspect of our lives in every sphere of life whether it be political whether it be you know in terms of science and so on and yeah i mean you know you and i we don't have the expertise to go and fact check everything but there is a, a degree i think 
uh, over the last couple of years particularly how um, politics has just done our thinking for us and we've been told no you must think this you must wear a mask you must social distance and so on you must wear a mask in a restaurant until you're sitting down and then you can take it off and it's like our, you know the thinking has been done for us and we haven't been allowed to question what the truth is and say hold on a second you know i'm not sure about this or or even is it worth doing that which is part of the truth as well isn't it you know what what is worth doing the 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 ethics of something that's part of the truth too um so yeah we need to be people who are committed to the truth in every aspect that's what i believe that you know the bible gives to free speech that it actually gives a concept of truth and the need to persuade people of truth with ideas rather than simply coerce them into believing something and the church has not always been you know the the right in the right about that um you know with the inquisition and what have you i mean you can argue about you know the the what what really happened at those times and so on but they was it really a properly christian sort of um what i mean politics mixing with christianity is never a good thing in that in that respect but um you know the church has not always been flawless in this area sadly and i think that you know hopefully as a church i think this is a new era and this is an era where we want to say i believe that you know free speech is important and truth is important and we need to be standing up for it um so let's commit ourselves to doing that and uh, let's stand up for for ideas let's stand up for truth and uh yeah stand up for god okay well let's move on now to our final thing the biblical reflection and I wanted to have a reflection on 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today. This was a passage that we had in church, um, read and preached on last week. But um, it made me think a little bit about other things that have been happening too. And um, I just thought it would be worth having a, a brief reflection on this. So this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 to 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, what really struck me about this was thinking about the way in our society that we do have this group of elites who are at the top of the food chain, if you like, who want to set the agenda for the rest of us. Think about net zero, for example, or lockdowns. You know, it's the, the government who set the rules. They want to solve everything. So they say, stay in your house, you know, replace your gas boiler with a heat pump or something like that. And we'll solve the problem. It's that we, the little people, need to be controlled by the big people. And the big people have the big picture. They know what they're doing. They are setting the agenda and they just need to control us to solve all of these problems coming. And it really struck me, I think, as we were reading this passage, just how that's not the way God operates. He doesn't use the big people to control the little people. 
that actually God cares about the little people. That God, in fact, not just cares, but actively chooses the little people. You know, if you feel insignificant compared to Klaus Schwab uh, in the World Economic Forum or Bill Gates or, you know, any of the other uh, big players who are, you know, going on in the world, then, yeah, we may feel small, but actually God chose the small and the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the ones who appear to be strong in the world's eyes. That that's That's how God works. You know, he doesn't choose rich, powerful people um, because it otherwise it would look like it was their success. Actually, God chooses the weak things, the things which are despised, the things which are not. I was thinking about, um, you know, that was it the comment, um, the deplorables comment, I think possibly Hillary Clinton made um, and at Spiked did a film called, I think, the deplorables. And um, this is, you know, that. I just thinking about the you know particularly since Brexit the contempt that the media class and you know political class have poured on you know typical British working class uh, families not just Britain but in the Western world it seems to be the case in America certainly and you know I just think if there's going to be a revival in this land it's going to come from the bottom up you know it's going to be it's going to be with the working class it's going to be with um, those who are considered you know the the bottom of the pile that's where it's going to come from my friends and i i think you know we we need the whole of society to be transformed but i think it's going to come from the bottom not from the top and i just wanted to say you know to to encourage you really that uh, if you like me feel very weak and powerless when it comes to uh, all the all of the the evil going on in the world and there's a lot of it then don't worry because God chooses the weak things and the lowly things actually to change the world. And who knows, you know, the power of just, you know, a few people in an area, you know, working class or, you know, ordinary people, whatever, you know, not powerful people, not influential people, but just ordinary people coming together, praying, worshipping, you know, that can really, that's what could really change the world. And, you know, we don't have to look to these big, um, you know, World Economic Forum or whoever it might be, you know, the G7 to solve everything. But just get together, pray faithfully, you know, read the Bible, pray to God, worship him, serve him. That will change the world. And God, that's what God chooses, actually, the way that God chooses to operate. So I hope that that's an encouragement to you um, today. And I, I found it an encouragement last week. Well, let's finish with a prayer and ask God for his help in being committed to to free speech, to ideas, to the truth, and uh, in trusting him in, in all of these things. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that speech is important to you, that your word is powerful. And we pray that you would help us to be committed to your word, to listening to you in our lives day by day. We pray that you would help us to be committed to seeking the truth in every way, to be um, being uh, persuading people of your truth uh, rather than coercing them or or tricking them or anything like that we pray that you would help us to be people of integrity who um, put you first put your truth first and we pray that you would uh, enable us to to trust in you even when it seems like those who are rich and powerful hold sway 
we pray that you would help us to commit ourselves uh, to trusting you and um, even though we may be uh, lowly uh, we pray that you would grant us the faithfulness um, to, to walk with you to worship you to serve you in even in small ways in our communities and trust that this is how you work so please help us to be committed to you in every situation and ask that you will bless us and those we love this week in Jesus' name amen well thank you so much for joining me today um, i do appreciate all of your um, comments all of your, the likes um, on youtube um, thank you for those who've uh, emailed me I, I by the way i should say i have an email address i, I keep forgetting to mention it sacredmusingspod at gmail.com if you'd like to send a message through by email and there is a buy me a coffee link if you'd like to express your appreciation in a, a financial way and I really do appreciate that. I, I don't, you know, asking for money as um, someone who's traditionally kind of British and a little bit um, quiet about these things um, is, you know, not easy. Um, but um, I really do appreciate that as well. So thanks so much, everyone, for joining me. I hope to see you again soon. If you've got any comments, any ideas, let me know in the, the uh, comments below or on um, the uh, Telegram or, or email them through. So I'll see you again soon. Until then, God bless.